I confess that I am no expert when it comes to the film genre of the Western. But when I was a kid, my dad used to watch a lot of them. They would frequently be on TV. And I, I, I often, I confess, thought they were boring. And most of them are, except for Tombstone. That's the best one that's ever been made. I'm not accepting any arguments to the contrary. Uh, but you notice that in the typical Western movie, there is a pattern that kind of develops. And this is part of the reason, I, I, I'll be honest with you, why I, I at one point thought they were boring is because they were somewhat repetitive over and over. You see the kind of same thing. There's a group of people or maybe a town totally that is oppressed by a villain, by a rough scoundrel or maybe a group of scoundrels that, that form the villain. And, and on the horizon comes this man who is riding tall in the saddle, and he's somewhat mysterious. You don't know much about him, and you don't know much about his backstory, but he rides into town, and what you do know about him is he kind of walks on the edge of the law, right? There's some discrepancies about his backstory, where he came from and what things that he's done, but you do know one thing is for sure. He is bad to the bone. And that pistol on his side, he is ready to use. And he can mow down anybody if they mess with him. And at some point in the story, that man is going to get a badge put on his chest. Maybe he comes in as the sheriff, or maybe he is deputized as a sheriff's deputy or something. But there is a point in the story where he is going to go from someone on the outskirts of the law to someone who has the badge on his chest. And is the law. And he brings justice. And what does he do? But he scares the villain off, shoots him dead, runs him out of town, does something to deliver the people from the oppressor and into this sort of new law, so to speak. So we get the, the phrase that we constantly use, or sometimes use, or maybe even seldom use, a new sheriff is in town, right? Meaning that the people have been delivered, that justice has prevailed, that this sheriff is coming to, you know, impose right law. So how does this even come close to talking about First and Second Samuel? <laughs> well, in the last chapter, in First Samuel 31, we saw that not only has the book of First Samuel come to a close, remember originally one book called Samuel, not only has the first book come to a close, but it came to a close with the death of Saul. And now, in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel on through, we're going to see the reign of David come into place. But I, I want you to just remember what's happened over the last few chapters. If you go back, to even in your mind, or you flip back there in your Bible to chapter 27, you can even see the headings that are above each section, just to remind you of what's been taking place up until this point. You remember in chapter 27, David finally flees to the Philistines right there at the beginning. And it's ironically in the hands of the Philistines that he has deliverance from Saul finally. Saul has been chasing after him, trying to kill him time after time after time. And finally, and he promises even time after time that he's not going to anymore. Oh, oh I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do this anymore. Well, David has finally kind of had enough of it and doesn't believe him. And he runs off to the Philistines. And there in chapter 27, he receives shelter from the Philistines. And Saul ceases to pursue him. So then, in chapter 28... Saul is surrounded by the Philistines. Saul and all the armies of Israel are surrounded by the Philistines. The Philistines are there at Shunem, and Saul is there at Mount Gilboa. And he decides in the night to go and consult a witch at Endor. He has consulted God. He has asked him, should we go fight the Philistines? What's going to happen if we fight the Philistines? Will we win the battle if we fight the Philistines? And he has received zero answer in response from God. And so he does what he can think of, and that is to go consult a witch and try to resurrect the body of Samuel or the spirit of Samuel and just tell me what Samuel says. And so he consults this witch at Endor and she sees the spirit of Samuel coming up from the, the ground and she tells him what Samuel is saying, which is, 
tomorrow you and your sons are going to die on the field of battle. So Saul is 24 hours from death. And he knows it. He has been told by Samuel through this witch as a medium that he is going to die. He and his sons are going to die there on the battlefield at the hands of the Philistine. Now we pause the story right there at the end of 28. And we rewind the clock and go back in time and go all the way across the country to David, who is not only receiving shelter from the Philistines, but he's actually been conscripted into the Philistine army. Not a good scenario. David has been sworn that he is going to protect Achish, the king, one of the kings of the Philistines. And so Achish says, you're my bodyguard, you're going with us into battle. And they're going to the battle that Saul went to consult the witch about. Right? They're headed that way. So we've rewound the clocks. We're back in time to David going with the Philistines into battle against his own people. Now we know that David has run to the Philistines precisely because he is not going to fight against Saul. He's already said that. So we know that David is in something of a predicament here. And as he goes into battle, probably we assume, thinking, what am I going to do? How is the Lord going to get me out of this one? The other kings of the Philistines come around and they say, who is this guy? This is David. He's not going with us into battle because as soon as we get into battle, he's going to betray us. So Achish grants them their way and he sends David back. David marches three days back to his hometown of Ziklag. And in chapter 30, he gets to Ziklag and he sees the entire city is on fire. And he and his men go to investigate and they find David's wives, his children, all of his possessions are gone. His men, their wives, their possessions, everything they have is gone. So David and his men set out to find them, and they find this servant, this Egyptian servant, who's been left by the Amalekites, and he says, it was the Amalekites, I was with them, I'll show you where they live. So David goes to the, the Amalekite camp, raids the Amalekite camp with his people. They send the Amalekites running off. They gather not only all of their possessions, they not only get their wives and their children back, but they actually get the possessions of the Amalekites back. And nothing was harmed in the process. So David went from losing everything to gaining not only back everything that he had, but then some. David leaves the camp of the Amalekites blessed. And here we stop the clocks, we go all the way across the country again in chapter 31, back to where Saul is with his son on the day of battle. He and Jonathan and his other two sons are there ready for the Philistines. And what do we find? But that as the Philistines come upon Saul, he's shot with arrows, realizes he's going to die. His sons are already dead. He asks his armor bearer, go ahead and kill me. His armor bearer says, I can't do that. Saul falls on his own sword. His armor bearer does likewise. And the Philistines find his body the next day and they pin it to the wall at Bethshan. They decapitate his head and pass it around. They put his armor in their temple as a sign that they have defeated the king of Israel. Now what, what's happening at the end of 1 Samuel, and the reason it's important to remember that, is because the author of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel is drawing our attention to the parallels between David and Saul. David is going into battle where it seems like all the odds are stacked against him, and the Lord keeps ruling in his favor. Go against the army of Ziklag, and he sends more uh, the, the armies of the Amalekites, he sends more Amalekites to flight than he actually has in his army. And he kills the rest of them. He walks away with what should be the biggest deficit in his life. He walks away with the biggest blessing. And here is the king of Israel who goes against the Philistines and perishes. See, what's happening at the end of 1 Samuel is really a picture, as I talked about last week, of two different kingdoms. One kingdom is the kingdom of Saul, and Saul rules that kingdom in fear and paranoia. He doesn't listen to God. He doesn't care what God actually says to him at all. He's going to go his own way and do his own thing. And for that, he reaps the sword. But David 
is actually a man after God's own heart. He desires to listen to the Lord. doesn't mean he's perfect. He's going to mess up royally. But his desire is to hear what the Lord says and to follow it and to repent of sin. So the reason why that's important is you have to see what's happening here in the book as a whole. And what we find out is that these are more than mere stories that are put on the page. What's happening here in front of us is deeply theological. God is establishing His kingdom by raising up His king in David to do exactly what He wants. So when David comes in and takes over, it is a marked departure from what Saul was doing. Saul, fear, paranoia. The entire last half of Saul's story is him trying to kill David. All because of fear and paranoia. He fears his own son. He's paranoid that he's, after, he's out to get him. He fears his own men. He's paranoid that they're out to get him. All of it is fear and paranoia. And the marked departure as we get to David is that he's bringing in the kingdom of God which couldn't be more different than that. So what do we have here in 2 Samuel chapter 1? But that David is establishing a new order. There is a new sheriff in town and the kingdom that he is bringing, which is God's kingdom, is going to operate by a different set of rules. And we're going to see that happen over the next few chapters. But first and foremost, David is going to set a precedent for how you are to respond to the Lord's anointed. How is it that you are to respond to the Lord's anointed? And the first thing that we see here is that the Lord's anointed must be feared. The Lord's anointed must be feared. Look at verse 1 and 2. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. Now, a couple of things are happening here right at the outset of the passage. First, what do we see but this person that we'll come later to understand is an Amalekite, came from the camp of Saul, and he comes to David, and he pays homage to the king of Israel. So an Amalekite comes to the king of Israel and he pays homage to him. And we learn in verse 2 that he was from the camp of Saul. Now what does that mean? Now we'll find out later that he's in Malachite. We don't know that just yet. All we know right now is he's just a man and he came from the camp of Saul. How does an Amalekite fall into the camp of Saul? Now we don't know for sure, all right? But if you go back about, I don't know, 15 or so chapters in the book of 1 Samuel you'll find 1 Samuel chapter 15 is where Saul was told, go to the Amalekites and judge them. Kill every last one of them. Does he do it? No, he doesn't. He goes to the camp of the Amalekites, and not only does he not burn it all down, he actually spares some things, all the best things. He leaves all the terrible things and the things that he can't use anymore, he, uses, he leaves those for the Lord. But he, burn, he, he takes all the things that are useful to him. And one person that he spares is Agag, who is the king of the Amalekites. Now, we're not told that he spares anyone else. We're only told that he spares all the good things. Is it beyond the realm of possibility that Saul also spared a servant in Agag's household, perhaps an Amalekite servant? that later then came to be his own servant? Maybe so. So I don't know where this Amalekite comes from, but it's possible that he was one that was spared back when Saul was supposed to kill all of them and burn them to the ground, and he didn't. And so, first and foremost, here is this Amalekite coming into the camp, and he is paying homage to the king of Israel. Presumably he paid homage to the last king of Israel, Saul, and now he is paying homage to the new king of Israel and recognizing his authority, and that is David. But the second thing that's being established here is that David had nothing to do with Saul's death. Can you imagine 
how the rumors would circulate. As Saul is peri- has perished on the field of battle, and David is handed the crown and the armlet. How did you come across that crown and that armlet, David? How did you get those possessions from Saul? I know you were headed to the area of Mount Gilboa. Did you go there and were you guilty of killing Saul? Is that how you came upon this throne? And the author is telling us absolutely not. In fact, if you do the math chronologically, David not only goes to deliver his own people from the hand of the Amalekites, but then he comes back to the city of Ziklag and remains there for, for two days. And on the third day, this other Amalekite comes rushing up to him. And what that tells you is that since it's about a three-day walk from where Gilboa is to Ziklag, what that tells you is that the battle between David and the Amalekites is going on at about the same time as the battle between Saul and the Philistines on Mount Gilboa. So it is impossible that David would ever be there. He has received this crown and this armlet from this Amalekite. And what we later find out is this Amalekite he will not make friends with. We'll we'll see that in just a second. So what does the Amalekite tell him? Look at verse 3. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle... And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, And I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son. And for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Okay, so this Amalekite comes and tells him this story. And what's important to remember is this is different than the story that we heard at the end of 1 Samuel, isn't it? The story that we heard at the end of 1 Samuel was Saul was shot with arrows, and he recognized that he was going to die. And he turned to his armor bearer, and he said to him, run me through with the sword, lest the Philistines come and mistreat my dead body, essentially. And the armor bearer said, no, I would never touch the Lord's anointed. I wouldn't do that. And so Saul fell on his own sword. And the armor bearer, seeing what, Saul, what happened to Saul, fell on his own sword. And the text specifically says, and Saul died. So we know already what was reported to us by the narrator is that Saul has perished on the field of battle because he killed himself with his own sword. So that tells us then that what the Amalekite is telling to David now is a complete and total fabrication. We know that this is a lie because the author has already told us in the previous chapter how Saul and his sons died on the battlefield. So then, if this is a lie that the Amalekite is making up, why would he be doing that? Why would he be telling the David, the king, this made-up story. Notice where the Amalekite has positioned himself. Did he just reach out and kill the king? No, he didn't. In fact, the king asked him to do it. 
And he knew that he couldn't, his life couldn't be spared, so he took the opposite course from the armor bearer and did the, what he would assume would be the honorable thing in killing the Lord's anointed. And then he has brought to David what he would assume is all that David cares about. He's taken his crown and the armlet and given it to David. Now we see in this little passage that David and his men all tear their clothes and mourn over the death of Saul. I don't know what that Amalekite was expecting to happen at the news of the death of Saul, but I'm betting you money that wasn't it. That probably was a pretty big surprise to him because it seems like where he has positioned himself is in the only territory that he could really take in explaining how he came upon this crown and this armlet. Because think about the alternative. The alternative would be, which it seems to be is the case, is Saul was dead on the field of battle and I robbed his dead body of this crown and this armlet and brought it to you. How good does that story sound? Probably not too great. So he's made up this story and he's put himself in a place where he is, presumes that David would want him. Someone that did what was noble and honorable and also didn't, which is the truth, rob the dead body of Saul on the battlefield. Now, why would he do that? Because he wants a handsome reward. The expectation is that David would hear what has happened to him, and David would treat this guy just like any other heir apparent, any other second in command, any other next in line for the throne in any other kingdom around the world. How would they respond? Sweet. Here's some money. You can serve at my right hand. You can be next to me. You can have a position of power and authority. Why? Because you have taken my adversary, Saul, who has run me off to the Philistines, and you have run him through with a sword. Good on you. Here's a reward. But that doesn't happen. Now, it's important to remember this because we're not told necessarily why this Amalekite, what the motivations are in his heart for telling David this made-up story. But if he presumes that he would have any other reaction than to give him a reward, why wouldn't he come up with a different story that would appease David? He's telling the story right now. He's in control of all the details. He's trying to tell David exactly what he thinks David wants to hear. But it doesn't go so well for this Amalekite. So as we put two and two together, we can see he expects to be rewarded. But look in verse 13. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy, destroy the Lord's anointed? Uh-oh. Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. The Amalekite faces judgment. He thinks that he's going to be able to be put in David's good graces by the actions that he's taken there on the battlefield in taking Saul's crown and his armlet and has done the thing that Saul asked him to do and brought all of this to David. He thinks that he's going to be rewarded. But you understand, unlike what happened to Saul in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, where he goes to the Amalekites and he's supposed to destroy them, but he takes all the good, all the people that are loyal to him, all the things that are going to be a blessing to him, and he keeps them for himself. Unlike that, David probably had every right to look at this Amalekite and say, well, you've done what's right, you've done what's good, stay here by my side. But he cannot be bought or persuaded, unlike Saul. So he takes this Amalekite and he sends him away to have him killed. Probably like what should have happened 15 chapters ago with Saul. 
He faces judgment. And why does he face judgment? Well, in verse 14 and in verse 16, what do we find out? David says to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's Lord's anointed? And then look in verse 16. Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. He is killed for lack of fear of the Lord's anointed. That is precisely why judgment falls on the head of the Amalekite. His lack of fear of the Lord's anointed. He assumes David was just as vengeful as Saul would be. He's going to do the same thing that Saul would do. Saul wants wants revenge. Saul wants to pin David to the wall. Saul wants to kill anybody that would come after and challenge his throne. Well, David's going to be the exact same way. Surely. But his own lack of fear of the Lord's anointed is what led to his judgment. You see, what's happening here is that a precedent is being established by David. The Lord's anointed is to be feared. God's kingdom is not going to operate like every other kingdom where the king on the throne has to always keep his head on a swivel, looking to his left and his right at all potential challengers. That is not how God's kingdom operates. When God puts his king on the throne, you do not raise your hand against him. David has seen that lesson. He has learned that lesson over the last few chapters, and it's coming to bear here on the judgment of the Amalekite. But beyond that, he's judged for his lack of fear of the Lord. It's not just because this man is special. Saul was a coward. He was ruthless. He was borderline, not borderline, he was crazy. He lost it. If anyone deserved death, it would be Saul. There's nothing that is special about him as a person. What is special about him is that the Lord has anointed him. He is the Lord's anointed. When the Lord wants to do away with the Lord's anointed, He will do away with him. The same way He put him there, He'll take him down. This is the lesson that David learns at the end there of chapter 26. He realizes, look guys, we're not going to touch him because whether he dies in battle or he dies of old age or he dies some other way, it's not going to be by my hand because I'm not going to raise up my hand against the Lord's anointed. He is the Lord's, and the Lord will do with him what the Lord wants. So this Amalekite is judged not just for his, his, the way he looks at the Lord's anointed, but the fact that he doesn't fear the Lord who is behind the Lord's anointed. But other than that, David is not going to be befriended by the enemies of the Lord in the Amalekites, unlike Saul. The second second thing that we see here in 17 and following is that the Lord's anointed is not only feared, but the Lord's anointed must be revered. He must be feared and he must be revered. David, in his mourning, leads Judah in lamentation. Look at verse 17 and 18. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son, and he said, It should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. Pause right there for just a second. Remember what's happening. Saul was part of the tribe of Benjamin, and he was king. Now he is dead, and David is the next in line. David is from the the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah would naturally want to celebrate because their man is on the throne. The same way a state celebrates when their governor or whomever gets elected to be president, a representative from their state is elected president, all right, he gets us, right? He, he's, he's one of us. He knows who we are. He, he, he is going to look favorably at our state and that kind of thing. So it would be with the tribes of Israel to some extent, is you've got a king now from the tribe of Judah, one of the larger tribes, now being put on the throne of Israel, and this is a reason to celebrate. And David says, hold on a minute. That's not what's going to happen. We're not going to celebrate the fact that I'm on the throne first. We're going to mourn. And he writes this lamentation, this eulogy, 
for Saul from the tribe of Benjamin, a former king, and for Jonathan, who would be the heir apparent from another tribe. We're going to take a moment and we're going to teach everyone how you actually treat the Lord's anointed, and that is to mourn their death because it is a sad thing. And it even says to us that he's teaching this to all of Judah. In verse 18, he said it should be taught to all the people of Judah, this eulogy, this mourning, this lamentation over the death of Saul. Remember, God's kingdom operates differently than the other kingdoms. You don't get this with the king of Babylon. One king dies and the other king mourns his death and says, let's, you know, let's pause. And... It's celebration. I'm on the throne, baby. We're headed to greener pastures. The guy before me was worthless. I'm where it's at. David says, no, God's kingdom does not operate that way. It's different. The Lord's anointed is to be revered. And so he leads them in this uh, lamentation. And there's several things that you need to see throughout it. The lamentation over the Lord's anointed, the reverence that he's bringing to Judah over the Lord's anointed is because first... Because the shamefulness of Israel's state. What it says about the shamefulness of Israel's state. Look at verse 20. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. Just think about this for a second. Who killed Saul? The Philistines. Who cut off his head? pinned his body to a wall, took his armor, and put it in the temple? Who did that? The Philistines. Is it going to be known in the two biggest Philistine cities, Gath and Ashkelon, that this has happened? You bet it is. Is it going to be celebrated in the streets? You bet it is. What is David asking for here in verse 20? He's lamenting the reality that the Lord's enemies are going to celebrate over the death of the king of Israel. Can you understand, Israel, what state we're in right now? We're in such disrepair and such disunity that the enemies of the Lord would celebrate their seeming triumph over the Lord's armies. Israel, you are in a pathetic state right now, and that deserves lamentation. It deserves mourning at the death of the king. Far from the Garden of Eden, we're not even close to that. We're in a place where Satan's minions are dancing on our graves. But not only that, there is the mightiness of Saul and Jonathan that needs to be remembered and celebrated for all the things that they've done. Look at verses 21 to 23. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely in life, in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. The Bible records for us that Saul was a fierce warrior and that he did deliver Israel from many battles. And God anointed him for the specific purpose of delivering his people from the hands of the Philistines. So time and again, Saul did those things. He was in trouble for not listening to the Lord and doing what the Lord had requested or had, had commanded him to do. But in spite of all of that, Saul did fight. And Israel, you need to remember, you're without your deliverer. You're without someone who is swifter than eagles and strong as lions who went into battle bravely and fought on your behalf. And not only that, but you were given success. Look at verse 24. You daughters of Israel weep over Saul who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. There was success that he actually brought and prosperity that he brought to the people of God because of all of the victories that he won in battle. And for that, if not that alone, he deserves lamentation and mourning. But then we get to 26 where David stops 
And he remembers specifically Jonathan, who would be his rival, who would be the heir apparent naturally if the kingdom was inherited by genealogy. Jonathan, he says this in verse 26, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen in the weapons of war perished. There are so many that will make hay about this verse in Scripture, verse 26, and will rewrite the story of Jonathan and David to recast it in a perverted light in accordance with all the things that are going on in our society now. The problem is the actual words of the Bible. That always ends up being the problem, doesn't it? It just, it always just, it's just, it's a near miss, right? What David says here about Jonathan is not, he doesn't use the word love like marital love. It kind of throws you off because when you read it, you say, your love was, to me, was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. And that immediately makes you think of the love of man and woman in marriage. And that's not the word that he used. He could have used that word if he wanted to, but he didn't use that word. The word that he uses there is a word that's akin to the word loyalty. So it gives the connotation not of love like erotic love or any other kind of love. It's a love that would spawn loyalty. And what he's, what he's getting at here is you're surpassing the kind of loyalty that would be given from a woman to her husband or a husband to, her, to his wife. So he's not talking about a, 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 an erotic kind of love. He's talking about a love of loyalty. And he's saying about Jonathan, your love, your loyalty to me, surpasses the greatest version of loyalty that we have in our society, which is the kind of, which honestly we probably know not much about in America, but nevertheless, that's the kind of loyalty he's pointing to. The pinnacle of loyalty in our society would be marital loyalty, and your loyalty to me surpasses even that, because Jonathan was put in an impossible situation. But Jonathan, as we saw last week, actually becomes the example of the kind of love that is, is commanded by God to the king. What David is actually holding over the heads of all his men, of all the people in Judah, and over that, uh, that poor little Amalekite who thought he was getting something else. Jonathan is the picture of that. He had to be loyal to his tyrannically weird and crazy dad, who is trying to kill his best friend. And he's caught in the middle. And he somehow has to walk the line of loyalty to both, not betraying either one. So when David calls him out, that's what he's venerating. That, David, that Jonathan not only feared, but revered the Lord's anointed. Both Saul and him. What in the world does that have to do with us? Don't you ever ask that? When you read the Old Testament, it's, it's hard sometimes for New Testament Christians to read a story that took place in the Old Testament and walk away with anything other than, I guess that's just a story that God wanted to tell me. And sometimes we're tempted, I think, to read the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, like it's a history book. Now, the stories that took place here are true 100%. They actually happened. So in some way, it is a history book. It tells us historical facts of things that actually took place in time and space. But is that the only purpose they serve? If so, then why wouldn't we read this story of David and this poor little Amalekite whom he sends off to the slaughter and this king who died and walk away going, well, I'm glad I know those facts. But do they actually change your life in one way or another? Not really any more than any other historical facts do. 
And you can do without some historical facts and you'd be just fine. Can you tell me all the names of Abraham Lincoln's kids? No, you can't. Has your, would your life change if I told you all their names? No, it wouldn't. Not in any way. What we're seeing here and what we believe about the Bible is that it's more transformative than that. That it is not merely a history book. So then, what does it actually mean? What does it say? How many of you have read the passage before you got here on Sunday and thought to yourself, I don't know how he's going to preach that. How do we read this? You have to understand theologically what is taking place. It's out with the old and in with the new. There is a marked departure. David is the new sheriff in town, and he is coming in to institute a new law and order. See, God is not just killing a previous king and putting another king of his choosing on the throne. Anybody could have done that. God is not establishing just a new person and really wanting to just see another rule and David's flavor of that rule in Saul's place. That's not what he's doing. He's establishing a pattern for what his king will be like. David is a real person, and he took the throne, but he is also a representative of what God's king would ultimately be like. He is a representative of what the Lord's anointed will eventually look like. When David does well, and does everything according to the Lord's will, we look at him and say, that is what the Lord's anointed one day will really be like. When David sins, we look at David and say, that is not what the Lord's anointed will be like. See, God is sowing seeds of his kingdom now in David. And he's establishing what this kingdom under the ultimate sheriff will actually be like. But David is just a seed from which that ultimate sheriff will come in and institute his law and order. You tracking? So now, as a New Testament Christian, I'm not just reading this as a history book. I can't anymore. The reason I can't read it as a history book anymore is because I'm on this side of the cross. And what I see on this side of the cross is that Jesus has come in and instituted from the line of David a new law and order that operates under the law and order and the banner of the kingdom of God. So now he's given to us freedom from sin. Freedom from death. He came and he lived righteously. He didn't mess up like David did. He didn't mess up like Solomon did, or Rehoboam, or anybody that came after them. He didn't mess up like any of the kings that came before him. He didn't sin against God in any way. And he took his righteousness to the cross, and there he faced the wrath of God on my behalf. And then he rose from the dead. And he proved once and for all that he is the king, worthy of worship, worthy to be feared and revered. But you understand what David is establishing here is that the Lord's anointed must be feared, the Lord's anointed must be revered. And where that seed comes to fruition later on is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What has happened now on the cross and subsequent to the resurrection is Jesus appears to his disciples on the mountain and he commissions them and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. All authority in heaven and on earth has been transferred to Christ. He is the king seated on the throne. And so what that means is that all attention from all the nations is now directed to the person of Jesus Christ. That he alone is to be feared and revered. There's none coming behind him. There's none who deserve the kind of worship and honor that is given to him. He deserves that exclusively. And all people are judged on account of how they respond 
to the Lord's anointed. Here's this poor Malachite coming into the sphere of David who has mistreated the Lord's anointed. And where does David send him? To the Galilee. See, he's planting the seeds for what will eventually come in Christ. Now all people are judged on when they look at Christ, what do they see and believe? Everyone. But you understand, there's also good news. For all those who fall under the banner of the King, who submit their lives to King Jesus who believe and trust in the forgiveness that He purchased for them on the cross, all of them receive ample blessings from His ministry. In the same way, but to a greater extent, that all of David's men receive the blessings that David inherits there with the Amalekites in the previous book. Now, everyone that falls under the banner of Christ receives those blessings, and that is given and offered to everyone. How is it that I come under the banner of Christ? I repent of my sins and I believe and trust in the forgiveness that He purchased for me there on the cross. I submit my life to Him as King and let Him dictate everything that I do from here on out. How I act, how I behave, the things that I love, and the ways that I operate. That Jesus Christ is worthy of fear, of reverence, and of our full and undivided attention. The Lord's anointed is to be feared and revered. But let's press in just a little bit further. What does that say about our life together as a church? It's a question. What are we doing here as a body of believers? Are we a group of people who have been called by the name of Christ and have been called out of the world and brought together at least once a week on Sunday mornings, throughout the week in various things that we do as we interact with one another, have we been called out of the world to come together under the banner of this king, the ultimate sheriff in Christ, the ultimate David in Christ? Have we been called by his name? If so then does his position as one who is to be feared and revered determine what we do as a church? When we gather together, what is our purpose? What is it that we are to do when we come together even on Sunday mornings? Do we come together here so that you can hear me give you five pointers on how your marriage could be better? Do you come here to listen to whomever stands behind this pulpit and wax eloquently about all the self-help things that you can find at Barnes & Noble? I don't think so. I think what David is sowing here in the grounds is the, is the fruit eventually reaped by the church in that it informs what we do when we gather together. We're taking the Lord's anointed and putting Him in our hearts on His proper throne. We're singing songs about His grace and His mercy. We're singing songs about His goodness and about how He calls the sinner to come and repent. We're singing songs about His majesty, about His, seated, his being seated on the throne. We're coming together to turn our attention to the Lord's anointed to revere and praise and worship Him because of who He is. See, it informs what we actually do as a church. It informs what we sing, what we think about, what we pray, how we preach. My goal is not to give you five self-help tips. My goal is to take the name of Jesus and lift it high. Because what happens is, if Jesus is exalted in our hearts, our marriages can't help but improve. Why? Because if Jesus is lifted high in my heart, 
then I become a humble person. I see myself as a sinner, not worthy of mercy, the mercy and grace that he gave to me. So how does that lead me to respond to my wife but as one who is merciful and gracious? What about parenting my kids? What about the way I treat my neighbor? What about the way I treat my friends? What about the way I work in the workplace? See, if Christ is exalted in our hearts, He helps us. The message of the gospel is you cannot help yourself. Imagine your life in eternity gathered around the throne of Christ when Christ is exalted to the position that he deserves in your heart as king. And there is no competitors crawling around in there anywhere. How will you treat your neighbor? How will you treat your friends? How will you treat those that you come in contact with? What will your life be like in relation to others when Christ is at the pinnacle of your heart? See, what we need as a church is to fear and revere the Lord's anointed beyond all else. And when that happens, everything else begins to fall in place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you help us in understanding what you have called us to in the gospel. Pray that you give us the wisdom to see <coughs> in the world around us the temptations that we have to take Christ down a couple of notches and accomplish salvation by our own hand. And come to love and cherish the possessions that we have or the things that are offered to us. The trinkets, the little joys here and there. To make them God and to honor them as king. To serve them in our lives and to pursue them with unfettered loyalty. Convict us where we have done that. Identify in our hearts those things that become elevated into improper position in our lives. Our kids, our spouse, our family, our friends, our free time, our possessions, our calendars. Convict us. Tear those things down. Move us to a place of repentance. Help us to find joy in the name of Christ. We pray. Amen.